Welcome to the Coffeehouse Questions podcast with Ryan Pauly. Joining me again over Skype this week is Megan Allman. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be back. Awesome. Well, it was so good. I, I had the chance to meet you at Summit Ministries and just see the amazing impact you had with those students there. Um, and just the desire that they had to listen to your presentation, as well as ask you questions on the beach. We had a beach time and there were probably a good 100 students, I think, um, out of the 200, about half the students took time away from playing at the beach to just ask you questions and hear you talk about this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when I was asked if my Q&A could be on the beach, I was giddy with excitement. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, I you know, I didn't know, I'd never been to Summit before, but I thought the turnout was incredible. And not only that, but the questions. So normally when I do these presentations, I get questions that are kind of challenging the the, the material or uh, trying to you, trying to dig a little deeper into it. And that's fine. But most of the questions I got from these students actually had to do with wanting to put it to use. Um, so they were asking about particular scenarios, and I, that was so encouraging to me to see they were really taking it to heart and wanting to go and make an impact with what they were learning. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's partially why I wanted to get you back on uh, and do this interview on the podcast, because I saw so many students there just craving this information and wanting to know how to put it into practice, because it's something that they get challenged on a lot. And just saying, well, I need to uh, get her on again and, and get this information out there to more people and help give responses to more uh, people that are facing uh, dif different challenges, whether it's at work or school or, or wherever they are. Yeah. So thank you so much for uh, joining me for the second part. Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, those of you that are listening, if you missed it, make sure you go back and catch last week. What we're going to be doing now is, is this episode is going to be uh, going over different objections and using the information that we learned last week uh, in order to answer and kind of give short responses to objections if you're ever faced with that. And so just very shortly, we went over the most important question. What's the most important question, uh, Megan? The most important question at the center of the whole debate is what is the unborn? Yeah, what is it? And we can look at that question and answer it using science of embryology, using philosophy to show that it, it, it is a living, distinct, whole human being and is intrinsically valuable. Absolutely. And when we can do that, uh, then we can make a strong case uh, for why it needs to live um, and why we can't kill it. Um, so kind of I, I took a poll on Facebook and Twitter and I got some people to respond and send in their questions and things that they have been asked um, and so if we could just uh, go over some of those and get a response and, and help these people know how to think through some of these issues. Sure, I'll do my best. Alrighty. So the first one says, um, no one knows when life begins. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've actually, that's been a challenge I've received before too. Um, a couple of things about that one. The first thing is we've actually demonstrated that the nature of the question we're asking is scientific. And so the science of embryology has, has answered that question. Science hasn't ever really waffled on that. Um, from the very beginning at conception, the unborn is a living, distinct, whole human being. Um, so, so the question has been answered scientifically speaking. Um, but another thing about that question is even if it hadn't been, even if no one agreed, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no true answer out there. So as Hadley Arkes, the uh, philosopher, would, set, would say, 
the absence of consensus does not mean the absence of truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think a, a good analogy that I like to use with that is, you know, if, if a husband and wife are sitting down balancing a checkbook and they come to two different uh, amounts of money that are in their bank account, it doesn't mean that there is no money. Right. You know, when there's a disagreement, either uh, both are wrong or one is wrong and the other one is right. I can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great example. And you're right. There is an answer out there. Um, in this case, we just we simply appeal to the science that science has already uh, actually answered this question very particularly Um and it's not, you know, I think I think the mistake some people think when they're asking that question that, again, they're appealing to that moral relativism. This is a subjective type of thing. We are the ones who are supposed to answer this. It's a religious type of question. So no one really knows. Um, so we just need to bring them back to that the, the right category and, and go to the science. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this question might even be uh, no one knows when value starts. Maybe so. That, that might even be it, too, and then that gets into the sled test, which we talked about last week as well. Right, and, and that, so if that comes out, then the, the right question is, at what point does a human being become a valuable person? And then you'll you'll be in a conversation at that point and, and be getting some types of probably instrumental answers. Um, yeah. All right, um, so moving on, uh, a couple questions that are along this line um, of reasoning. Someone wrote in, um, it becomes a life when it no longer needs a body to survive, that it relies on its mother to survive. Therefore, it's not a living, valuable, you know, human being. Um, OK, yeah, I, I see what they're saying. Um, it, that conversation could go a couple of different ways. Um, one possibility is that they are right in the middle of our sled test. So either they're talking about the environment where the unborn is located, in which case we've demonstrated that where we are doesn't determine what we are, how valuable we are, um, or they're, they're talking about degree of dependency. The unborn is dependent upon its mother for survival, but we can, we can show that there are plenty of human beings dependent upon things for survival uh, who we would all agree that we should not kill because of their dependency. Um, so so if, if the conversation is there and ends there, then, then good and well, that, that's where we are. Um, others who are making that type of claim may be appealing to something a little trickier, uh, and that is autonomy. Uh, so the, I think the most common way that that claim would go is my body, my rights. Um, and, and, and if that's where the conversation is going, then that, that's a little bit of a different conversation. And then we could address that now if you want to, or we could talk about that in a minute. Yeah, that's another one of the objections. But right before we get to that, you know, one thing I was thinking, because this question came from uh, one of the uh, person that I knew from Summit Ministries. And uh, and so they they wrote me and said that they got into it, a, a discussion on this topic after leaving Summit. And so... Um, it was good that they got some of that information, but um, we would say that even a newborn is dependent right, on the mother or someone to, to care for it. If you just left a newborn by itself, it's, it's not going to survive. Um, right. So that kind of the trotting out the toddler tactic would be uh, applicable in this situation as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because we wouldn't kill a toddler for the reasons that we're saying we would kill the unborn. And in fact, Ryan, what we what we do see is Many times, reasons given for why abortion should be allowed would also work in favor of killing a newborn. Mm -hmm. So um, if we have to be very careful because, like I said, ideas do have very real consequences. And, um, in fact, there are some philosophers who would go so far as to say that that should be morally okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So kind of now moving ahead to what you, you mentioned, I think one of the very 
most common things that I hear is this idea of it's the woman's body, it's her right to her body, her right to choose. Yes, well, her right to choose, and so if it's the right to choose, then that's a different kind of conversation too. Because my first question is going to be, choose what? That is a great question. <laughs> um, as a woman, I'm 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 very pro-choice when it comes to all manner of things. I chose my husband. I chose which school I attended and which career path I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> they chose names for my children. Um, there are all kinds of things that I, I believe we are free to choose. So our disagreement would be over this particular kind of choice. Um, and you know, there we can try out a toddler again, uh, just given choose depending on what the answer to choose what is. Well, because I think they would also agree if we just asked them. Uh, there's a whole list of things that if we said, well, do you have the right to choose this? They would say no. Exactly. You know, right to choose owning a slave, or right, you know, right to choose whatever it may be. Me walking out with your wallet, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so th that that would help bring the conversation or that would help steer the conversation to just be on point and say, well, we need to talk about the nature of this choice because we obviously disagree about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as far as just my body, I think one of the things we talked about or that you mentioned in the science of embryology is that not only is this a, a living you know, human being, but it is distinct. Right. It's a separate entity with its own unique genetic code. Um, so that that's important to point out. Now, there are those if if the if, like I said a minute ago, the argument is one of autonomy. In other words, the the claim most often that, that is associated with that is my body, my rights. Um, that's a different type of argument. And um, I can address that here very quickly. Um, when someone is making that argument, it, it sounds very uh, it has a lot of teeth in the beginning when you yep. hear it. Because they're conceding your science. They said, oh, yeah, we know that it's, a, that it's a human being. And they're even conceding, to a certain extent, your philosophy. Oh, we know that it's valuable. But autonomy, my body, my rights. My, in other words, my rights as the mother trump the rights of the unborn child. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I'm facing an argument like that, um, I like to go to the best version of that argument. Um, and so it's this is another reason why it's important for us uh, to know our stuff and to even be familiar with what some on the other side are saying so that we can address these things in conversation. So the best form of the autonomy argument actually, I think, comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson, who in 1971, um, she wrote an, an article called A Defense of Abortion. Now she's an MIT philosopher. We're, we're talking about a very smart woman here. Um, and she gave what's called the violinist analogy. So very quickly, what that is is that um, she said, imagine that you wake up one morning and you are not in your bed where you went to sleep last night, but instead you're in a hospital room and you turn over and see that there are all these tubes hooked up to your body that are attached to a stranger in the bed next to you. And the doctor walks in and he says, oh, good, you're awake. I'm so sorry, but last night you were kidnapped from your bed and these people from the Music Lover Society of America searched all available public records and found that yours is the only blood type that can cure the kidney disease of this world-famous violinist. But don't worry. If you'll just stay here for nine months, he'll be cured of his ailment, and you're both free to go on your way. Now, Thompson wants us to understand that just as we would say, we have no obligation to stay attached to this stranger, in the same way, she says, a mother who is pregnant with a, a child that she did not intend to carry has no obligation to give support to that child. So what she's done here is create an, an analogy. Yeah. We have two stories, two, two scenarios that she is telling us. These are similar. 
Um, so we have to look at the similarities. And the way these types of arguments go, if the parallels between these analogies fail, then the argument fails. Mm-hmm. So let's look at a couple of the parallels very quickly. We know that pregnancy is not necessarily a prison bed in the way that she's making out this to be. In fact, most women describe pregnancy as one of the most wonderful times of their lives. Um, we know that that in this case, the, the this is a very unnatural situation where you're hooked up to this violinist by all these tubes and things. But an unborn child in its mother's womb is in, a, in its natural environment. I mean, where else is it supposed to be? Right? Yeah. Um, we know that and, and this one actually would be barring uh, situations of where a woman has been raped. And that may be something we want to address in a minute. Yeah, um, we will. Yeah. But barring those situations, becoming pregnant is not the same as being kidnapped and, and plugged up. Um, so you know, pregnancy is a very is a natural consequence of sex. Um, and so it just doesn't make a lot of sense to say, hey, I consented to the sex, but I didn't consent to the pregnancy. So we see that that's not the same type of thing exactly. Um, And then the big ones for me, Ryan, is to say that a mother's responsibility to her own child is no different than her responsibility to a perfect stranger. I think we can just observe the world around us and see that that is not the case. You know, I I think I gave an analogy when I was at Summit and and, and described um, if this room were on fire and you were all, my entire audience were all in that corner and my daughter was in the other corner, and I could only had time to go to one corner. I, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to get my little girl. <laughs> um, it, it just a mother's responsibility to her own child is something we observe. Uh, and then finally, the big one for me, th- I think this is probably the most powerful one, other than the last one I mentioned, is that abortion is not the same thing as simply withholding support. Uh, ethicist Christopher Kayser uh, defines abortion as the intentional killing of a human fetus. And that is a definition that begs no questions. It's accepted across the board. That's exactly what it is. Um, but Francis Beckwith, the philosopher, uh, he would say it this way. To say that abortion is the withholding of support is like saying that smothering someone with a pillow is simply the withholding of oxygen. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, what we see from this, Ryan, is that the, the parallels between these stories, they just don't hold up in the ways that they need to. And we have the underlying problems, too, of looking at something like autonomy as the thing that rules the day. In other words, you're free to do whatever you want with your body. Well, we know that that's not true. I am not free, for example, to go and prostitute myself in downtown Atlanta. I will go to jail for that. Yep. Um, and also, underlying this is an, a deeper problem. It, it, it looks like uh, what Thompson would have us believe is that pregnancy is not a good thing. Just on the face of it, prima facie, pregnancy is not a good thing. Um, it's more like a, a disease. And, and we see that that is not the case either. Yeah, it's just not the case. And so that just analogy doesn't really work. No, um, it's and not And there's those compelling. issues with it. Mm-hmm. Well, oh. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> I think that really does provide some clarity on that kind of an issue and that autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of moving on. Uh, here's one that um, I may get. Uh, you won't, but mm-hmm. I may. And any male listener that's that's uh, listening, abortion is a women's issue. Men should stay out of it. Yeah, I don't like that one. <laughs> um, but that's not a good enough reason not to <laughs> use it. I mean, that's subjective. Um, <laughs> No, I, this, this is, this is a human rights issue. 
if, if I am right with the science and philosophy that I've presented, if the reasons I've given for why I think abortion is wrong, then what we're looking at is a case where males and females are being slaughtered. Um, in fact, the numbers show conservatively 3,000 every business day, and that's in America alone. So what we're looking at is a human rights issue, um, not not a women's issue. I work with men, men whom I admire greatly, but they are making the same apologetics arguments that I am making. So it is the arguments that must be answered, not necessarily the person. In fact, again, to cite Francis Beckwith, he would say arguments don't have gender. People do. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, if that is true, then <laughs> let, let me just backtrack a little bit. It doesn't seem I'm not hearing this raised against men who are speaking up for the pro-choice side of things. In other words, their voices are welcome to the debate. Um, and, and, and to take it a step further, when Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, it was passed by nine men on the Supreme Court. So if, if it were true that men can't speak up about abortion at all, then we should overturn that law. And I remember the first time I heard that, and, and I think that is a great point to make. If men cannot speak on this issue, then the law should be overturned because it was men that decided it. Yes. But whether you're a man or a woman, if you have presented the case for life that we did in the first podcast or anything resembling that, then what's required at that point is that your argument be addressed. Yeah. And I think this kind of a, a little bit applies to something that you said earlier, I think in the last podcast when you said, you know, with the bumper sticker, don't like abortion, don't have one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like saying, you know, don't like slavery, don't own one. Well, this is like saying, you know, if you're not a woman, you can't speak on it. Well, that's like saying, you know, if you don't own a slave or you're not a slave, then you can't speak against slavery. Well, that's kind of saying uh, it's not kind of it is. It's sexism. Yeah. And so it's like we we understand that it's we can speak against moral issues um, in any other way, no matter if we're, you know, that of that sex or not or that you know race or not. Um, in the same way that I don't have to be a woman um, to to make a case because arguments don't have gender. Right. And so I, I would not only say you ought to make a case, um, but, but that, that you should do so in a, in a powerful way. We need we need strong men who can speak up graciously on this issue. Absolutely. Um, OK, moving on to more of uh, kind of health issues. Um, I had a series of questions talking about, for example, um, it's safer to allow it than ban it and have women do it illegally in back alleys. Yeah, um, that one, but a lot of these health issues, Ryan, are going to, I think that the place they're coming from most often when you hear them is an emotional place. Um, and so I, I want to just say that outright. We're making some intellectual arguments throughout this podcast, um, but we shouldn't discount this is an emotionally charged issue for many, many people. And a lot of times because they have been hurt because of this issue. Um, that's one thing I know for certain from my work, that no matter where somebody stands on the spectrum from pro-choice to pro-life, this issue hurts people. Um, so I, I just I think what I'm saying is as we proceed with talking about some of the issues that, that touch on health like this one, um, I, I really am asking for some grace from people to understand that, that my feelings on the issue run very, very deeply. Um, so I would say that anytime you have someone bring that objection up now, I'm going to switch over into training mode. Um, you need to address the emotional side of it. Uh, so with something like this, any death is a tragedy. So any death because of abortion is a tragedy. But when somebody comes and they make this charge that 
if you make abortion illegal, then some people are going to be in danger. My first question would be, who is going to be in danger here? Because the unborn person that we've just demonstrated is fully human and fully valuable is going to be killed. Yeah. So that's my first question, because this charge assumes that the unborn is not a human being. So you're back to your question, what is the unborn? Um, but secondly, I would say that a charge like that, it, as a woman, it's, it's kind of insulting uh, to think that I cannot reason enough, even in a difficult situation, but, but would yet, yet be forced as a victim into a back alley. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, but, but even if it were, what is at the heart of this charge is, and, and let me just rephrase the charge a little bit. Um, so what we're saying is, because some people may, and the question, you know, may is the operative word, may die trying to harm other people, we should make it safer for them to do so. And so that might be a way to, to turn that around and rephrase it and, and offer it back. You know, and, and then just ask for some clarification. Help me understand. Yeah. And I want to go back and just reemphasize something that you did, uh, that you mentioned, just on the emotional aspect. And, you know, I've, I, that's come up on this podcast quite a few times. Um, and I don't think that it can be repeated uh, too many times. Uh, it's so important to keep going over this. And in fact, in my interview with Sean McDowell, he, you know, he said when someone comes up and says, you know, how can God allow evil and, and still be good? Uh, he doesn't immediately respond it, but he always responds with a question of all the things that you could ask God, why that? Mm -hmm. um, because that will get down to the heart of why they're asking the question. They could say, well, I, I saw it in the new Batman movie and it was an argument that they brought up and so I want to know. Or mm -hmm. they could say, well, because my, you know, my sister just died of cancer. Um, and that lets you know, are they looking for an emotional, a pastoral response to love on them and to really help them or, or just an intellectual discussion? And the same thing is true with some of these issues we're going to talk about and, and the question of rape coming up soon. Um, you know, are they just trying to think through this and what is a good, you know, way of thinking? Or did this happen to them or a close friend and they're needing something uh, different than just the intellectual response? So yes, it, it can never emphasize that too much. No, I could take it a step further. Given what we've learned in the first podcast, even if the person in front of you is vehemently angry with you, with the ideas that you are presenting. If you, for one moment, treat that person as if they are any less valuable than the unborn children that you're trying to protect, then you are the one who is being inconsistent and they should call you on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's so important to keep that in mind just when you're having these conversations and so difficult. Well, in fact, I mean, even, even today I was listening to um, a podcast from Stand to Reason um, and uh, a couple, it was from a few weeks back. Um, but Alan Schleeman went and did a pro-life um, mission trip with some high school students mm -hmm. and had a pro-abortion choice uh, college professor come speak to his group. And after the meeting, uh, she was talking about how, you know, uh, I'm the enemy and all this kind of stuff. And he said, no, 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 you're not the enemy. We love, you know, we care. You, We believe, you know, in our worldview that we are equally valuable, that intrinsic value that we're talking about. And then even afterwards, and he didn't tell the students to do this, but they came up and said, hey, thank you so much for coming and gave her hugs. Oh, and wow. she was blown away that someone could disagree with her on this issue, but just come at it from a loving, respecting, you know, respectable just way of just caring for the other person. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan's a friend of mine and does incredible work um, in all of the areas where he specializes, but that that's wonderful. And we have experienced the same types of things when we go and, and do it this way. Yeah. Um, so how, how great is that? I love that story. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I thought that that really kind of set it apart. I think that we don't have to be, this is not an angry yelling at each other discussion. No, but it's a serious one, an important one, vital. Exactly. Yeah. So what if someone um, talks about the mother's health, not in the sense of doing it in back alleys, but if the mother's life is in, in danger, if the pregnancy is not terminated? Oof, yeah. Again, real world stuff. Um, nothing about that is easy. Um, but let me try to give some tools just to just to think about a scenario like that. One that I could name that would be exactly like that is an ectopic pregnancy. Um, an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy where the egg is fertilized outside of the womb. So most often an ectopic pregnancy would be when the egg is fertilized in the fallopian tube, but then implants there. Um, and in the case of those that type of pregnancy, that embryo, because it's growing, is not going to survive the pregnancy. It doesn't have room to grow there. And in fact, we, we don't have the kind of medical technology where we can transplant that embryo into the womb where it could safely develop. And, and if, I, if there are listeners out there who are going to be doctors, be that doctor um, who, who finds the way to do that. But what we have right now is a scenario where if it's allowed to continue growing, that embryo won't survive, but it will rupture the fallopian tube and it could cause its mother to bleed out and die, um, which would happen very quickly. Now, in a case of an ectopic pregnancy, a physician will normally perform a procedure where the physician removes the embryo. Now, the embryo will die because of that, but here's the difference in a case like that. Though that physician can foresee that the embryo will die, that is not the physician's intent. And remember, we have defined abortion very specifically, the intentional killing of a human fetus. Um, and so in a situation like that, what we do not, we don't have an abortion. Uh, we have something different and it is a tragedy in this case. But um, we appeal to what's called the law of uh, double effect, uh, which, which is where he, he foresaw it but did not intend it. Um, and we also say that that was the greater of the greater moral good was to save one life rather than losing two lives. So when we have a situation where the mother's life is in danger and a doctor has to make a very difficult call, uh, which, by the way, I, I just want to point out, these situations are very, very rare. That doesn't make them any less tragic, but, but they're not as um, frequent as Hollywood would have us believe them to be. Uh, the numbers are surprisingly low. I think in the U.S. annually, there may be about 40 cases where, where they're looking at this, this possibility. Um, because of medical technology and how great it is. But even if it were the case, the doctor has a, a you know, pregnant woman on the table and has to make a difficult call. Um, choosing one does not undo the humanity and value of the other. So even in those cases, the case that I made, the pro-life view, that the case that I built, it still stands. What we have is the effect of a very broken world where sometimes people die. And when they do, it is tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think the story that you, you shared about the burning room also can apply here. Of uh, You know, if there's multiple people and, and only one can be saved mm -hmm. and a fireman or someone has to rush in uh, and they pick one person or you on the battlefield, uh, you can only save one. That does not mean that the other person that 
could not be saved is not human or not valuable. No. Um, but rather that they are both valuable, yet just the tragic um, world that we live in, uh, sometimes things happen that we just can't control. Yeah. And the hard thing about these types of questions is there's no easy answer because the world is very broken. Um, I think that Christianity does a good job explaining why that is. It's, it's why I'm a Christian. It makes the most sense of the way the world really is, um, even though it's very hard to live in a broken world. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one more hard one, or probably one of the hardest, uh, in the case of rape. Yeah. How do we go about handling that? With a lot of grace. Um, <laughs> just that word, Ryan, when, when I hear the word rape or when I speak it, it feels like a punch to the gut. Um, and I've, I have never been the victim of, of rape. Uh, so I, the one thing I would say, because remember I, I talked a minute ago, you need to address the emotional side of these types of objections first. And especially when it comes to this one. Um, and to do so graciously and, and in a way that is smart. Uh, it would do me no good to say, I understand that must be hard. I, I don't understand. <laughs> That's never happened to me. So for me to try and say something like that would be crazy. Um, I cannot imagine the psychological horror that somebody must experience in something like that. But I think so much of human beings that I think that even in the most horrible circumstances, we can still know what is right and what is wrong, and we can still have the courage to stand on what is right. So as deeply as I feel about a situation like if a woman were to be raped and then conceive, I could still use a toddler as an example. Um, so, you know, if I had a three-year-old standing next to me and his mother had been raped and that's how he was conceived and every day he reminds her of how horrible that was, would we say that she could kill her toddler to lessen that emotional reaction that she has? Would it? Would it even help? Um, or in a civil society, how, how should we treat other people who remind us of horrible things? Should we be allowed to take their lives so that we could feel better? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. Rape does not justify abortion. Now, is there anything easy about that? No. Do I always like that answer? Let me be honest. No. Because most often when I'm giving that answer, the person standing in front of me has been through something like that, and I can see her. Yeah. Um, but I think that when we know what is right, we have to stand on that truth, and it takes great courage. And the other thing that I know from the people that I have spoken to is I don't know why we think for some reason that abortion is in some way going to help erase what has happened in the case of rape. Um, no, a woman who has been raped will never forget that. Yeah. Um, so, so the abortion would only compound, I think that, that what's, what's happening. Um, now let me shift gears for just one second. And, and because sometimes when you're getting this objection, it is an intellectual objection. And if that is the case, then I think sometimes it's very smart to come at it from a from a legal standpoint. In the case of rape, what we have, um, given the the evidence that I've provided from science and philosophy, we have three people involved if a woman conceives. We have the rapist, we have the woman, and we have the unborn child. Now, I think that everyone would agree that the rapist is deserving of justice, that justice should be ser served. 
and that that rapist should be punished in some way um, and have consequences for the actions that that he chose. Uh, Everyone would agree upon that. Now, if I were to ask all of the same people, do you think that capital punishment should be brought about for the rapist? Most people would say no. And, and I think they're right. Our country does not, based on our legal system, dole out capital punishment as a consequence for rape, as horrible as it is. Now, in the case of an abortion, all of those people who have just said no capital punishment, I don't think that should be what happens. But for those who think that abortion should be allowed, what they are actually saying is that, that this third party, this innocent party, should receive capital punishment without due process. Sometimes that brings the conversation to light as well. Yeah, I've never thought about it in that way before. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, because if, you know, working from what we discussed with the science and philosophy, showing that it does have the same value as a child or just as a normal, you know, human being, um, that would follow. Right. Right. It, oh. it does follow. But I, I will say one more thing. When it comes to someone who's been through something like that, that's where if I'm speaking to the church, I would say that's where we step up. Yeah. And 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 this is I don't know how much you have dealt with this, but just in some of my readings and, and listening, um, the church has stepped up um, as far as I've heard statistics that the number of um, pregnancy centers that are run by nonprofit organizations without government funding, that sort of thing, outnumber the number of abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of people out there that really do care about this issue that have stepped up and are trying to make that difference. Yes. These are people who are volunteering their time. I've worked with many of them, some of the bravest, most winsome souls I've ever met who are dying, men and women, to just accept um, people who are struggling with an unplanned pregnancy and and walk with them um, through the pregnancy and beyond. Yeah. Well, to wrap this up, uh, kind of one more series kind of topic of questions. Um, I think they all kind of fall under the same category, so I'm just going to kind of clump them all together. Uh, but if someone were to come up and say, um, the unborn does not have a nervous system and doesn't feel pain, therefore it's okay. Or the unborn, there is no heartbeat, uh, therefore it's fine. Or the, there is no consciousness, there is no thought process, there is no uh, blank, mm-hmm. therefore it is okay. Um, how could we go about responding to that? Well, the ones that you named, Ryan, all fall under level of development. So the first thing is, uh, if someone names one of those, then they have to answer what philosophers call the grounding problem. Why is it at that point, why is it at a, a developed nervous system and not something else? Why is that the thing that gives you value and not something else? So that question must be addressed first. Um, but let's say that they provide some kind of answer for that. We can go right back to SLED and what SLED demonstrates. Any of those answers create a value spectrum. Um, when we look at nervousness, I mean, there are people with what is a condition called uh, CIPA, congenital insensitivity to pain. That means that there are full-grown adults walking around with, because of uh, something that's gone on in their nervous system, they don't have the ability to feel pain. Does that mean that we can take their lives because they're not as valuable as the rest of us. No, it doesn't. 
but that spectrum is there. It's the same thing with any of the others, even with consciousness. And by the way, with consciousness, we'd have to do a little more work. What kind of consciousness are we talking about? I'm barely conscious before I have coffee in the morning. And I'm only (laughs) partially joking about that. I'm pretty serious. My caffeine addiction is very high and I probably need to repent. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, Christopher Kayser, an ethicist that I quoted earlier in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, written in 2010, he says requiring actual consciousness, in other words, if actual consciousness is what you're talking about, that renders us non-persons whenever we're asleep. If it's immediately attainable consciousness, well, that, that counts out someone who's in surgery. If it's just the basic brain structure that we need for consciousness, but not consciousness itself, well, that that knocks out those whose brains are temporarily damaged. So whether they're in a coma or in the hospital or they're undergoing rehabilitation for that. On the other hand, if it's just the potentiality for consciousness, then all of those other people count. But so does the embryo and the fetus and the newborn. So in the same way, if you can't kill them, uh, we, we would agree you can't kill someone who's in surgery. They're not or they're not. We would even also say that they're not less valuable. Right. Um, so. so those those fall under level of development. They create value spectrums. But even in naming one of them, you've got to answer the question, why is it that that gives us value and not some other trait? Exactly. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. If if the people are listening and they have questions, they want to find more resources, where can they go uh, to do that? Oh, yeah. Well, they can come to our website. You mentioned it earlier. It is ProLifeTraining.com. Uh, it's all squished together, ProLifeTraining.com. And uh, there they will find our there, – there are articles there. There are video uh, lectures that you can watch. There's a blog that we write. Uh, we try to keep that pretty updated on current events. Uh, just a wealth of resources there. My boss, Scott Klusendorf, has written two books. One of them is called The Case for Life. Um, in fact, that, the website for that book is caseforlife.com. You can go there to order the book or to see what the book's all about and learn some of the arguments that you heard in the first podcast. Um, that book, I think, is the greatest one-stop shop for someone who just wants to dive into learning pro-life apologetics. Because not only will you get very condensed forms of the arguments you've heard me give, um, you can also follow footnotes to read some of the more sophisticated uh, thinkers out there and, and how you know Scott and, and our organization has familiarized ourselves and condensed them. Um, there's also a student version of that book called Stand for Life. The same arguments are presented, but Scott co-wrote that book with a pastor named John Enzor, whose organization Passion Life does a great deal of pro-life work in China. And uh, so it splits the chapters between Scott and John, giving the apologetics and then a pastoral answer as well. Awesome. Um, and do you do speaking in uh, events at churches, schools, uh, if someone wants to get a speaker to come uh, do a training with their with them or their group. Yes, I speak to in in schools. We do debates. We do speaking on college campuses. We'll go into churches, uh, both to congregations and to youth groups. I also work with uh, pregnancy resource centers, and and uh, our, our all of our speakers do the fundraising banquets for those, and we love working with those people. Uh, so yes, we are we are available. You can look at us up on the website again and find out how to contact us there. Awesome. Well, I just want to encourage everyone listening, check out ProLifeTraining.com. Get those books uh, because this is a big issue and there are good ways that we can respond, as I think that you've seen uh, Megan demonstrate. Megan, thank you so much for taking the time, joining me on this Skype call. I hope you have a wonderful evening and um, just uh, keep doing some awesome stuff training people in this in this area of apologetics. 
Same to you, Ryan. I look forward to seeing you again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Your love will guide my way.